0: Thank you. Amen.
1: the choir. my notes the rest of acts chapter 9 verses 1 through 19 i like to read the whole passage meanwhile saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the lord went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at damascus so that if he found any who belonged to the way men or women he might bring them bound to jerusalem the men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand, and they brought him to Damascus. For three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias? And he answered, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to Straight Street and go to a house of Judas and look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment, he's praying and he's seen a vision that a man named Ananias is going to come and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. And Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. The Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument who I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid hands on Saul and he said, Brother, all The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me to you, so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell, fell from his eyes, and his sight was restored. Then he got up, and he was baptized, and after taking some food he regained his strength. And for several days he was with the disciples and Damascus and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus. These are our sacred stories. Be to God. Okay. Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you? I'm Jesus, whom you were persecuted. The conversion of Saul. Saul, who after this experience is later renamed Paul. The conversion of Saul is so well known, so mythologized, that at this point, people who have never read the Bible talk about seeing the light, or about the scales falling from their eyes as they explain their own epiphanies or transformations. Often, this story is used to talk about someone who goes from being non-religious to being religious. They talk about stopping their sex, drugs, and rock and roll lifestyle and seeing the light. If you've been to youth camp, you've heard these stories. (laughs) But here's the thing. Saul is not converted to religion. He was already religious. He's not living a sex, drugs, and rock and roll lifestyle. No, he was passionately following what he believed to be the way of God. He was persecuting a particular sect of his own religion for what he believed to be heresy. Saul was a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. The early followers of Jesus were Jews. They were all Jews. And meeting Jesus on the Damascus Road, Saul does not convert to Christianity. Christianity was not a different religion at the time. Those early followers of Jesus were part of a branch of Judaism. Saul was a Jew, and Paul was a Jew. Paul died a Jew. So Paul, Saul, is not converted from non-religious to religious, and he is converted. It's not a different religion. Saul was converted away from viewing his faith as a set of rules, regulations, and requirements that must be forced on everyone, away from that, toward an ever-expanding understanding of God and God's vision for humanity. Choir sang again and again, why do you persecute me? Saul's why is wrapped up in fundamentalism. It's the same why that has protesters standing outside of Planned Parenthood. It's the same why that heaps shame and blame and exacting certitude about the things of God on people's heads. It's the same why that has many shouting about bathrooms and trans children's bodies. Fundamentalism in any religion often leads to violence and persecution. It is dangerous, and it is deadly. Fundamentalism, with its focus on a literal interpretation of Scripture, demands certain beliefs from its followers and then convinces them that those demanded beliefs are the only possible reading of Scripture. There are many dangers here. Not least among them is how easily people can be manipulated. Fundamentalism permits a small group to determine the rules that apply to others, often at the price of eternal damnation. Allied with political power, fundamentalism can marginalize, ostracize, and oppress so often the very people that Jesus spent most of his time with. There is a pervasive myth in our country that the religious right was birthed an outraged Christian response to Roe versus Wade. This is not a correct telling of history. The religious right emerged from Christian outraged response to desegregation. Following the 1954 Brown versus Board of Education decision, which stated that school segregation was unconstitutional, there was a spike new private Christian schools that only admitted white students. In 1969, a group of black parents from Mississippi initiated an investigation from the IRS into these private schools, claiming that the school's tax exempt status as charitable institutions did not align with the rampant racial discrimination of their admissions policies. The conflicts went to the Supreme Court which ruled that schools with racially discriminatory practices of admission could not claim tax exemption. This resulted in schools across the country losing their tax exempt status, including Bob Jones University. Bob Jones refused to admit black students, even after consequences imposed by the IRS and evangelical leaders were incensed. Under the leadership of people like Paul Wyrath and Jerry Farwell, evangelicals who up until this point were largely uninvolved in politics, united around the common cause of upholding segregation in private schools, and they did so with claims of religious freedom. But outrage at desegregation did not incentivize everyday evangelical voters and without the voters, it was impossible to create a unified political movement. They needed a cause to rally around, and they found it, an abortion. They recruited Francis Shaver, who threatened Christians with a fear of secular humanism, in a film series about abortion. It featured scenes of baby dolls littered across the Dead Sea. It was a horrifying film series and it was wildly successful. By 1980, the religious right was synonymous with the anti-abortion movement. But, here's the thing. Shortly after Roe v. Wade was decided, the Baptist Press, a wire service run by the Southern Baptist Convention, ran an op-ed praising the ruling. It says, religious liberty human equality and justice are advanced by the Supreme Court abortion decision. You can read it on that line. And then in January, January 31st, 1973, a piece by W. Barry Barnett, the Baptist Press's Washington bureau chief reads, religious bodies and religious persons continue to teach their own particular views to their constituents with all the vigor they desire. People whose conscience forbids abortion are not compelled by law to have abortions. They are free to practice their religion according to the tenets of their personal or corporate faith. The reverse is also now true since the Supreme Court decision. Those whose conscience or religious (laughs) religious convictions are not violated by abortion may not now be forbidden by a religious law to obtain one, if they so choose. Garrett then goes on to assure his readers that the decision was made not by a Warren type or liberal Supreme Court, but by a strict constructionist court, most of whose members have been appointed by President Nixon. Again, a quick Google search. You can read this for yourself. Similarly, right after Roe v. Wade was handed down, W.A. Criswell, former president of the Southern Baptist Convention and legendary pastor of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, responded to Roe by saying, I have always felt that it was only after a child was born and had a life separate from its mother that it became an individual person. And it has always therefore seemed to me that what is best for the mother and for the future should be allowed. Well, later changed his mind on this position. Many other evangelical leaders changed their positions on abortion when they figured out that they could harness rhetoric about abortion to consolidate political power. Now, I firmly believe that for some, opposition to abortion is entirely about political power. And I know, because I'm related to them, that for some, this is an issue held with tremendous sincerity that has nothing in their minds to do with political power. It is these sincere people who make me think of Saul and Saul's conversion. After Saul's experience on the Damascus Road, we read, Saul got up from the ground And though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. For three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. And he might have remained just like that, were it not for Ananias. Ananias, a disciple of Jesus, has a vision, and in the vision, Jesus asks him to go to Saul. Now, Ananias has heard of Saul. They've all heard of Saul. Saul is rounding up the followers of Jesus and throwing them in prison. So Ananias explains who Saul is to Jesus. And Jesus explains that he knows.
0: And Ananias
1: still needs to go to Saul and lay hands on Saul because Saul is going to bring Jesus' name before the Gentiles and kings. And you know what? Ananias goes. And when he finds Saul, we read, he laid hands on Saul and he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me to you that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was recovered. Brother Saul, These words convict me. There is work that I must do to be able to call sincere evangelicals, brother and sister, and in my case, stepmother and stepsister. Work I must do to be compassionate rather than belittling. Work I must do to listen and hope for the same listening in return. Ananias was a stranger to Saul. My Sauls are already my family and some of my friends. And some of them may listen if I would show them the same respect and connection that Ananias shows Saul. There are so many arguments pointing to the hypocrisy of evangelicals and conservatives, so many suggestions That pro-life should mean caring for children once they're born. So many logical appeals to bodily autonomy and human rights. So many zingers and insinuations that those who want to end legalized abortions are idiots. And friends, I'm not sure that these arguments will be the blinding light, the voice of God that might help some understand God differently. And that's what it will take. Seeing God differently is what it will take for sincere evangelicals and conservatives who are not worried about politics, but who are worried about God's will. What it will take for them to see things differently. Saul believed he was doing God's will when he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He was acting with religious and politically sanctioned authority. He was violently attacking those who disagreed with him. It took a blinding light and the voice of Jesus to change him. I don't know about the light, but I know that the voice of Jesus continues to speak. Jesus speaks through our voices. Our silence will certainly not bring about change. Teresa of Avila reminds us, Christ has no body now but ours. How can we be the voice of Jesus so desperately needed? The voice saying that bodily autonomy is a gift of God. For those who have had an abortion, especially Christians who have had an abortion, telling the story might be a way that others hear the voice of Jesus asking, why are you persecuting me? not putting this on their shoulders, but simply saying, if we start talking about what has become shamed and hushed, if we bring ourselves and our beliefs into divine light and say to those who might possibly listen, I'm for reproductive justice because I'm a Christian. I support the sanctity and dignity of all bodies and believe that God does too. I believe that God wants people with wounds to be able to make decisions about their own wounds. Jesus sought over and over to lift up the oppressed and to care for those in need. Abortions are medical care, often medical care for those who are in desperate need, at least of needs, Jesus said. cannot be naive about the future. A Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe versus Wade will result in states being able to create restrictions and bans without federal oversight. Women in states that protect the right to an abortion and rich women in states that make abortion illegal will continue to have access to abortions. However, impoverished women living in states where abortions are illegal will struggle to afford and find reproductive health care. Overturning Roe will only exacerbate existing inequalities as bans and restrictions disproportionately affect women of color, women in poverty, young women, women in rural areas who have more difficulty accessing already limited medical facilities. what's already happening in states like our own and we cannot pretend the future is anything other than but can we channel Ananias can we listen for the calling of God and go where we do not want to go like Ananias can we be willing to see the humanity in those who are persecutors Ananias calls Saul, brother, and places his hands on him. So much of the anti-abortion agenda is rooted in fundamentalist theology and distorted readings of Christian, distorted readings of scripture. It's rooted in Christian supremacy and Christian nationalism. It's rooted in white, patriarchal ideology we be the voice of God God who is love and proclaim again and again that we believe in reproductive rights and bodily autonomy and dignity and equality and in human rights because of our faith some of us know that conversion is possible some of us were once active members of restrictive churches We know that it's possible for people to see the light of the love of God. We know too that seeing the humanity of sincere evangelicals and conservatives will give us the compassion to offer respect, to listen, and then in our turn to explain that if the goal is truly to reduce abortions, then the most effective approach is to invest in sex education, livable wages, educational opportunities, accessible health care, robust community resources. Making abortions illegal will all but end safe abortions for the poor. And my friend, in any reading of scripture, literal or otherwise, one cannot ignore all the Bible has to say about equality and care for the poor. I'm not suggesting that you wear a reproductive t shirt, reproductive justice t shirt to Mother's Day brunch with your evangelical and conservative relatives. I am suggesting that I must do a better job of realizing that some of the sincere evangelicals and conservatives in my life are more like Saul than I've given them credit for. I must ask myself if I'm willing to be more like Ananias. And that's the end of the sermon. But before I leave the pulpit, I need to say here and now, with all the religious authority that I have, if you have had an abortion, you are loved by me and by God, and you are not alone. If you are a medical professional who provides abortion care, you are loved by me and by God, and you are not alone. If you are someone who is scared about the potential reversal and constitutional law concerning abortion, you are loved by me and by God, and you are not alone. Your rage is holy. Your fear is valid. Your grief is real. And God is with you. And if you are a sincere, evangelical, or conservative who wants to understand another way of seeing scripture or divine will around abortion or any other justice issue, I will listen to you. I will do my best to treat you with respect, and I will explain what I see in scripture. You are loved I mean, and by God, and you are not.